Communication Mixed Down. The show that takes a critical look at contemporary media. And explores the way we use communication to make sense of the world around us. From social media to citizen journalism. To the logo on the front of your favorite t-shirt. It's all part of the Communication Mixdown. Each week, Thursday, 6 to 6.30, Communication Mixdown. Cranking up. Right here on 3CR. Welcome to Communication Mixdown. This week, we're looking at the connection between language and cultural diversity. Hello, I'm Bronwyn Cran. And I'm John Langer, and this is Communication Mixdown. Here's a dilemma. We're told by politicians of all stripes that Australia is one of the most, if not the most, successful multicultural nations on the planet. The refrain, as you know, gets repeated endlessly. Just think back to Australia Australia Day last week. How many times did you hear this? And then there's this. There's a state election coming up in Victoria in November this year. And in the very same week we're told what a thriving, vibrant, multicultural society we are, the leader of the Liberal National Opposition in Victoria, Matthew Guy, announces his party's plan to revamp the school curriculum. No more Asian studies, no more Indigenous history. They're just a bunch of fad-based subjects, we're told. Back to basics, literacy, numeracy and the heritage of the Western Enlightenment. So this week on Communication Mixdown, we're asking the question, where does language fit in? Misty Adonahue is a language and literacy specialist who teaches and researches at the University of Canberra. And I spoke to her by phone last week to talk about the relationship between multiculturalism and the everyday use of community languages across the country. Thanks for being on Communication Mixdown. I just wanted to start us off by asking you to give us a bit of a snapshot of what might be called the language landscape of Australia. And let's put that in the context of living and breathing communities using language as opposed to school-based language teaching and government language policy. Sure. So we, we're good at celebrating Australia as a multicultural country, but we don't really recognize the fact that with that multiculturalism comes multilingualism. And in fact, in the last census, we found that there is around about 250 languages spoken in homes all around Australia. 250 languages, that's a lot of language. That's a rich linguistic landscape. Uh, however, more back at school, we don't really have that wide variety of language recognition. Of course, schools can't teach 250 languages, but it would be nice if they recognised the fact that our children come to school with those languages in place. Instead, what we get is um, school systems desperately seeking to teach foreign languages. So every government, uh, even prior to the Howard government, but starting in a really deliberate way with the Howard government in 2001, uh, the governments have set targets for school children to learn languages. And those languages have really been foreign languages that have been set as targets for learning, Uh, not not nurturing or maintaining home languages. In fact, acting as though those home languages don't exist and starting from an empty slate and 
imagining that we could just teach children foreign languages at school. So what we end up with is a hierarchy of languages in Australia. We have the really privileged language of English, and then straight after that we have these school languages that we learn, and they're the most highly valued ones of those classic ones like mm. French and German. And then after that we have some uh, um, kind of financially or economically or trade-valued um, languages. At the moment that's Mandarin, in the past, it's been Indonesian. Sometimes it's been Japanese. The languages that we value at school have um, really kind of ebbed and uh, swayed mm. with whatever our trade interests are at the time. And way down at the bottom of the hierarchy are all of those 250 community languages that are um, being spoken at home. Uh, and probably at the very bottom of that recognition list are all of those indigenous languages. Uh, including uh, the dialect of Aboriginal English. These are languages that Australians barely know about, barely recognise, yes. certainly governments and systems don't recognise. Yes, and the thing about the policies, uh, you made some comments about actually there, there's a huge amounts of money that gets put into these uh, education programs, and, and they're actually not all that successful. Give us a little bit of a your a, your take on that. Yes, in fact, millions uh, are set aside by every government, as it turns out. Every government puts a new language policy in place. So I mentioned the Howard government's policy in 2001, which set a target of 25% of all children learning that foreign language at school. Uh, that remained at 25% when Kevin Rudd brought out his uh, language policy, although he chose different languages as the focus. Um, and then uh, Tony Abbott uh, upped the ante to 40%, which was very ambitious given that we've never ever managed to reach those 25% targets. Mm. And with each of those language policies, that's millions and millions and millions of dollars. So what we end up is spending a tremendous amount of money uh, trying to make sure that uh, Australian children can count to 10 in Mandarin, whilst uh, completely ignoring the fact that we have many, many mm. Mandarin-speaking children walking through our kindergarten and reception yep. doors with the language in place yep. that we fail to nurture. Yep, yep. Uh, it's very interesting. And, and is it, look, I'm, I'm confessing my ignorance at this point. Is there a particular language at this point in time which is being targeted more than others? Uh, no, there's not. In fact, what's happened now, so language policy is so fraught in, uh, in Australia that in the end, uh, a federal policy uh, really uh, it's dependent on what the states do with a federal policy because states in the end have control over what happens in mm. education. So each state and uh, um, federal jurisdiction like the Northern Territory or the ACT make then their own policy around language. And so every state and territory decides for itself how it would reach this mythical 25% uh, yes. or 40% target, and they choose which languages they'll focus on. But as I've said, they mostly choose um, uh, languages that would be either classic, like French or German, or ones that would be... Um, beneficial for trade, yes. like the Asian languages. So, But there's no consistency, and even in one single jurisdiction, one of the huge challenges of getting 
kids to learn these languages mm. is that there's no consistency between schools. So a child might go to primary school mm. and learn a bit of Japanese for the six years of primary school and then feed into their high school, which is doing Indonesian. Yep. So yep. they don't even get a continuity. So it's very difficult to achieve these language policies yes. uh, without any uh, systemic... Um, and really determined look at what's happening mm-hmm. in schools. Look, I, I wanted to actually quote you back to yourself at this point. I, I, want, to, I, want, I want to give you something that you've written. It, you've said Australia is generally happy to be multicultural as long as it just involves some tasty food, a bit of dance, and music at an annual, annual festival. And what was very interesting to me was to demonstrate this, or at least illustrate it in some ways, you have a very long list of politicians who might encourage multiculturalism in terms of multilingualism, but the public never really hears about them and about their language competencies. And I wanted you to name some names. Oh, sure. And there, there are plenty of names in Parliament. If the citizenship uh, saga this last year has shown us anything is that we have politicians that have come from uh, many countries from around the world and either they've come or their parents have come and so that makes them not only multicultural but it's highly likely that it makes them multilingual so for <clears throat> for example uh, Senator uh, Dio Wang over in Western Australia obviously a Mandarin speaker mm. uh, our finance minister Matthias Cormann speaks uh, German and Flemish. He may also speak French, given his birthplace in Belgium, mm. which is closer to the uh, to the French border. The fact is, we don't actually know which languages he does mm. speak mm. because he's never been... Um, yep. He's never told us. Yep. There, very, Nick very Xenophone. Yep. Uh, I'm a Greek speaker myself, so I know Nick Xenophone is a Greek speaker, although you never hear him mm. uh, speaking it or saying that he can. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about Nick Xenophone is that his name actually means foreign speaker. That's what Xenophone means. Tanya <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Plibersek, I don't know. Does she speak Slovenian? Her parents came mm-hmm. here from mm-hmm. Slovenia. Mm. Uh, Penny Wong, she's from Malaysia. What does she speak? Does she speak Malay or right. Mandarin or Cantonese or mm. Hakka? They're all possible languages yep. in Malaysia. Yep. Does she speak any of them? Who knows? Unfortunately, we're we're very keen to talk about our multiculturalism, yet somewhat reticent yeah. to talk about the languages yep. we speak. Yeah, yep. it's, ve- it's extremely interesting. The thing that you've just raised, uh, it's it's fascinating actually. Re- having read what you were writing about, look, I, the other thing that I wanted to ask you today, and th- we're we're this is an interview. We're doing the interview on Australia Day, and this is a bit of a big question. But I want to put the, what you've been saying in this context. It's supposed to be a day where, which celebrates and unifies the country, at least according to some political discourse. But it's also the week, and I've got to tell you, you're in Canberra at the moment, we're in Victoria. It's the week in Victoria when the opposition in the state parliament said that they would be revamping the education curriculum if they won the election in November, dumping what they describe as faddish subjects like a focus on Asia to concentrate on what they're calling Australian values. And I was just wondering... Could you, if you know, this is obviously dropping it in your lap, but could you comment on this relationship, on this in terms of your views about multilingualism and community languages? Yeah, so what your opposition party down in Victoria are really um, 
setting a match once again to those cultural wars. Who are we? Are we Anglo-Australian who uh, let people from all countries come in as long as they pretend uh, to be Anglo-Australian? Or are we quite, um, are we a multicultural country? Are we a country that is not based just on Anglo values, but the fact that we're made of every nation that's come into this country? Uh, so that's the, the so-called cultural war. Mm. And in um, lighting the match to that, they light the match once again under the uh, what I think is similarly a linguistic war, only nobody's prepared to even enter the battle for the linguistic war. The fact is that these languages are such a bonus to, uh, to a country, even from a pragmatic economic standpoint. A country that is multilingual has fingers that can go out all over the globe. Uh, mm. Why would we not be marking that as central to our identity? Mm -hmm. Why would not, not be who we are, Australia, the multicultural, multilingual country that can reach out and touch all of the global communities that we wish to communicate with, trade with, have diplomatic relations with? Why would that not be central to identity? What do we have to lose? Mm. We have only to gain mm. by mm. making sure that our multilingualism is a, a central part of our identity. And unfortunately, uh, moves like announcements like the coalition government down, the opposition government in Victoria, take us further and further away from that possibility. Mm. Look, it's been really interesting talking to you, Misty, and uh, your insights have been really fascinating. And thanks so much for being on Communication Mixdown today. It's been lovely to be with you. And that was Misty Adonayu, and she's a language and diversity specialist, and she teaches at University of Canberra, and she does research there as well. And we'll put some links to that with uh, Misty's stuff uh on our website. You're with Communication Mixdown, and this week we're looking at the link between language and diversity. Communities of Sound is a 3CR curated lineup of summer afternoon performances showcasing treaty, creative women, and diverse cultures. Join us at the Fairfield Amphitheatre on Sunday, February 18th, between 5 and 7.30 p.m., to enjoy live performances from Kucha Edwards, Tando, the West Papuan Band, Sweet Dreams, Manisha Njali, June Jones and Danny Sib. Pack a picnic to share with friends and family or grab a tasty bite and bevy from the 3CR food store. That's Sunday 18th of February, 5 till 7.30pm at the Fairfield Amphitheatre. For further details, call 94198377 or check out our website at 3cr.org.au. Presented as part of the City of Yarra's Fairfield in Feb series alongside Play On and Melbourne Ukulele Collective. The City of Yarra is a proud sponsor of 3CR. You're with Communication Mixdown. Well, we've heard about the policy inertia on languages. Let's, let's now look at how one community in Australia is taking the initiative itself for keeping its ancestral language alive. Our next guest is Callum Clayton-Dixon. Callum is a member of the Ambayan Indigenous Clan of Northern New South Wales. He is a language revivalist and a postgraduate researcher at the University of New England. Welcome, Callum. 
Tangarandaga. Ah, indeed. Callum, you're a researcher on the Anewan Language Revival Program. Could you tell us briefly yep. about the program? When did it start? What's it about? Sure. Um, well, we founded the Anewan Language Revival Program in early 2016. Uh, there was a community meeting called the Armadale uh, in New South Wales, and various members of the local Anewan community. Uh, we all came together and we discussed the need for a community-based, community-driven and uh, concerted effort to revitalise our traditional language, which had been uh, dormant for a number of decades now. And we've been uh, working on producing the first uh, Anawan language knowledge book, which will include the most comprehensive um, uh, dictionary and grammar of the language to date, uh, as the foundation for a sustained community language revival program, uh, and that's one of it. That's been our main project thus far, and uh, and we've also uh, opened our uh, new Adelaide language hub in the middle of town last November. Um, so we've just been in the process of getting the language program up and running, starting to put some foundation foundations into place to ensure this can be a sustained uh, and sustainable uh, project for the future for our community. That's fantastic. Um, can we just step back a, a moment, Callum? In what region was Anawan traditionally spoken? What place? So Anawan is the um, coverall term that's now used and has been used for a while now um, for five, what we think are five different dialects um, of the one language spoken on the southern half of the New England tableland. So a region including um, colonial towns such as Armadale, um, Walka, Urala, um, up towards Gyra um, on the tableland, and yeah, so five different dialects was, we think were spoken across the across across that district. Very interesting. Um, look, this might sound. My next question might sound like an obvious question, but what is the significance of language to Indigenous people? Um, well, <clears throat> for for Indigenous peoples and cultures, like language isn't just simply a communication tool. It's a it's a um, means of relating and both relating with other people and relating with country. So <clears throat> the 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 two most the two fundamental relationships within Aboriginal society and culture are the relationship between people and people and people on land and it's necessary to have those relationships as healthy relationships and um, language is one of the ways in which those healthy relationships is maintained and fostered. Um, so in order to restore those healthy relationships, language revitalization is therefore necessary. Great, thank you. So you mentioned earlier that um, Anawan the Anawan group of languages hasn't been spoken for some decades now. Um, and we know that colonisation decimated many of the, you know, 250 or so Indigenous languages in Australia. So the last fluent, fluent speakers of Anawan are now gone. I'm interested in your methodology. How do you go about revitalising a language from the fragments that remain? What, what methodology are you and your co-researchers using with Anawan? 
Well, there's only one audio recording of the language, and it's from the early 1960s. And there was a survey done <clears throat> by a researcher, and he went and spoke to, I think, around 50 different Aboriginal people from across the table and region that were that he was advised um, uh, who, who could be who, who were potential informants on the Anawan language, and only four of them provided him with. Um, vocab vocab items uh, and a total of a grand total of about 30 or 40 words were elicited in that whole process and that was in the early 1960s so I guess that shows how um, how much devastation was inflicted upon Aboriginal people on the table and in the process of colonisation and how intense and rapid it had been early on for it to have gotten to that to such such a such a reduced stage by the 1960s um, in comparison to surrounding language groups uh, who've either still got a number of speakers today or, I guess, had quite, quite a number of, uh, quite a large number of speakers at that time, whereas we did not. Um, and in this process of language rec- We've also looked into the history of colonisation on the tableland to try and explain um, why our language has ended up in the position that it is now. Um, and that's shown quite clearly that the process of colonisation on the tableland was extremely rap- rap- rapid, extremely intense. And uh, I guess an example of that would be the first water came up here in 1832. By the mid-1840s, so 13, 14 years later, there was half a million sheep on the tableland. Uh, And the tableland had been divided into over 100 different stations. Um, And I guess that shows the rate at which Aboriginal people were being dispossessed um, by both um, colonists and their their stock. Uh, And those are some of the earlier factors that um, came into play when it came to the... uh, to the decimation of the language. Sure. So, yeah, it's all kind of a, a holistic approach to looking at language revitalization alongside reclaiming the, our history of survival and resistance in the face of colonisation. Very interesting. So we, if we move forward from the 1960s where that um, recording was made to, to now or to 2016 when you started the pro, pro, program, the revival program, yep. Have you, um, what's your methodology? Do you find any, are there any speakers still of an one in, in the community at all? Um, no, no, unfortunately not. Um, there, there's no, there hasn't been fluent speakers for a long time now, but there is, um, uh, there are a number of records that were made in the late, very late 1800s, early 1900s, and the uh, late 1920s and early 1930s of the language. So we've managed to uh, compile uh, a lexicon of just under 500 words so far um, and also found various records of um, linguists and researchers uh, eliciting uh, different grammatical constructions. So trying to um, trying to flesh that out as much as possible so we've got... The, the most amount of language material to work with when it, when it comes to um, being able to express ourselves in our own language in the most in, in widest way possible. Um, but it, it's a very it's a very it's going to be a very long process because of how much damage has been done to our language. 
but um, I think we're off to a, a strong start. That's great. So you mentioned earlier the production, one of your goals of the program, your first goals is the production of this an A1 language book. Um, that's yep. a very ambitious project. It's the compilation of a dictionary and a grammar of the language. Yep. What, what progress have you made so far? Um, so that started uh, around the, just, just before we um, formed the language program um, and we've been in the process. So I guess it's worth mentioning that there was a there was some work done on the language back in the 1970s by a linguist uh, named Terry Crowley, uh, and, but he only had certain resources um, accessible to him. And on top of what Terry Crowley was able to uncover uh, and reclaim from archives, we've been able to add a number of different resources and um, materials to the the collection of archival materials that we do have in terms of um, pulling uh, words and gra- uh, examples of how grammar's being used and all that off the pages of researchers' notebooks um, and put it in, and start to compile it into a database. So there's um, there's a, a piece of computer software called Miramar and Miramar is an Aboriginal designed um, uh, piece of software for communities to take back control of language reclamation so we can go into these old records so we can do interviews with our old people if, if people are still speaking the language and record that language and compile that language into a community dictionary um, and that's what the, the program is called it's called the Miramar Community Dictionary Maker so that's something we've also started um, doing is starting to enter all that data that we've reclaimed and transcribed from these old records into this database so we've we're in the process now of starting to compile the dictionary. Fantastic. Callum, can I ask you just two really quick quick, quick things to finish up? Um, are you aiming for Anawan to become a spoken language again? Are you aiming to use these resources to teach Anawan again to in schools or to community members? Definitely, definitely. I think, like, for me personally, the goal isn't to pepper English with um, Anawan words. Uh, like, that, that's what we'll have to... F- where we're starting to do now um, as a way of renormalising and reintroducing the language. But um, the ultimate goal is to be able to have fluent conversations with each other uh, in our own traditional language and be able to use that language as a means of um, uh, relating with country, relating with um, with kin, and uh, in a way that helps to restore Indigenous um, Indigenous lifeways that have been suppressed and, and uh, damaged for so long in this region. That's such a positive story. Callum, our time's almost up. It's been really insightful talking you to, to you today. Before you go, we go, you, you said a few words in an Indigenous language at the start of the show. Can you say a few words to us in Anawan to end the show? Sure. So Danganandaga means uh, how are you? Uh, it's just a simple greeting that we've started um, using. And a way that we say goodbye or say goodbye to people is... Um, uh, that means uh, let's see each other soon. And I hope we do. Thank you so much, Callum. Callum, no Callum Clayton Dixon is a member of the Ambayan Indigenous Clan, a language revivalist and a researcher on the Anewan Language Revival Program. That's it for Communication Mixdown for this week. We're here next Thursday. And... Uh Thanks to both our guests, the language and diversity specialist Misty O'Donoghue and Callum Clayton-Dixon, Indigenous language researcher and uh, 
as Bronwyn said, we will be back next week. Our material that we were using today will be on the 3CR Communication Mixdown website. We're here next week. And let's go out with a track. This is No Fixed Address.